open up for one final time to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28, verses 16 through 31. Abran sus libros a el libro de Hechos, capítulo 28, versículos 16 a 31. Now, if you didn't bring a Bible, know that this is a totally safe place to learn how to read the Bible. If you haven't read the Bible in a long time or never have read the Bible at all, this is a completely safe place to learn along with the rest of us. If you don't have one with you, you can just open up your phone's browser and search Acts 28. We'll be reading from the ESV version in English. Now, this morning marks the end of our adventure through the book of Acts. And for over 10 months, God has brought to life for us the words that were penned by Luke that began actually not in chapter 1 of Acts, but in the gospel of Luke, in which Luke catalogs the, the birth and the life and the ministry and the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then in the second book, the accompaniment to the gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 1, Luke writes to his readers, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then, as we've had the privilege of following along, Luke proceeds to give the account of Jesus' commission to his disciples. And, and then, and then to, to the, the reconstitution of, of, of the, the 12 disciples, and then the giving of his spirit at Pentecost, which leads to the birth of the church. God's reconstituted people under the new covenant, sealed by his own blood. One global church comprised of local outposts local outposts of his kingdom spreading and multiplying to the end of the earth. And through Luke's account of the birth and, and early life of the church, we get a picture of the early church. 28 chapters featuring the characteristics of what Jesus ordained and designed his corporate people, his gathered people to be like until he returned. 28 chapters featuring the timeless traits of the church, traits that were not unique to the first century local churches, but, to, but traits which Jesus ordained should characterize every true local church until he returns. We've seen that the gospel is the timeless message of the church and, and that that message should set the patterns and rhythms of the church. We've heard that, that God's word should be the foundation of the convictions we share in the church. We've seen that the Holy Spirit is the timeless power of the church and that taking the gospel to our neighbors and then to the nations is the timeless mission of the church. We've heard that God's sovereignty is the timeless confidence of the church. We've seen that hypocrisy and division are, are timeless threats to the church. And then about 30 more timeless traits after 
that. But listen, as we come to the end of the book of Acts, the challenge left to us by this passage that we'll be reading here in just a second is, will we be changed by what we have seen and what we've heard? And not, not as individuals, but as a church, will we actually be changed by what we've beheld in the book of Acts? So this passage, this is the end of Paul's journey. He's finally at Rome. But I think that what the Lord has for us today in this passage is not primarily the story of his time in Rome, but a critique that Paul makes of his Jewish Roman hearers that stands as a sobering yet really grace-filled challenge for us. So let's approach that now. And with that, would you read along with me in Acts 28 for for the last time, beginning in verse 16. Luke writes, And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, but there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it's spoken against. When they'd appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you 
that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that that you have given us the privilege of beholding your word in the book of Acts. Your word to us, penned by, by Luke, as he was inspired by your Holy Spirit to write exactly what you had given him to write. That we might hear from you. Lord, as we hear this one final time from Acts, Lord, I pray that you would not allow us to sit in complacency, to leave what we've learned and what we've heard and what we have, Lord willing, understood in the past, but be changed by it and move forward, continually changed by it as we wait your reappearing. Would your spirit be with us today for our good and your glory? Amen. Amen. So listen, after, after two years, after four attempts on his life, after four trials and a shipwreck, fi- Paul is finally in Rome. He's finally in Rome. Just as the risen Jesus had promised that he would be. And, and, and now, what does he do when he gets there? He calls together the Jewish leaders immediately. Why does he do this? Look at verse 20. Look down at verse 20 of the text. He says, For this reason... Therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you. What reason? Since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing these chains. That phrase, the hope of Israel, it comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, in which the Hebrew prophet, Isaiah, prophesies of a coming comfort. He says, comfort, comfort to my people, promising this coming comfort comfort, this, this coming consolation, this coming hope that the Jewish people longed for. So Paul is saying, listen, I, I, I'm coming to you because of the hope of Israel, because I have met him. I know who he is. And I've called you here today because I want to tell you about him. I've come to Rome Jesus has sent me to Rome not just to come on vacation to the center of the the Western world, not not just to prove that Jesus' promises will come true, which they do, but he sent me here on purpose that I might testify to you of the hope of Israel, just as I have to your brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And so the Jews say, verses 21 through 22, okay, well, we've never heard of you, and, and we've never heard anybody speak any evil uh, uh, against you, but, but we have heard of this sect, this group of, of, of Christ followers, this group of Jesus followers. And what we do know about them is that they're spoken against everywhere. 
which is, mind you, a bit of a remarkable thing to say, given how widely and expansively the church had exploded it did so in the context of, of having the reputation of being spoken against everywhere, mind you. That is the power of God. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Completing his work, expanding his, his kingdom, despite the opposition in the atmosphere within which it exists. But they say, well, it's interesting because we, we have heard a lot about what 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 you guys are talking about, we'll give you a hearing. We'll, we'll hear more from you. So, they come with a much larger audience a few days later, and Paul preaches from the Old Testament, the, the scriptures, the, the law of Moses and the prophets, which he refers to here. He preaches from their scriptures of how Jesus is the Christ, the hope of Israel. But their response was underwhelming. Look at verse 25. It resulted in them arguing with one another, disagreeing with themselves. Luke says in 24 that some were convinced, but others disbelieved. Convinced, but maybe not persuaded to, to look to Christ in faith as Savior. It was sort of like a, well... This guy might have something that has merit, and everybody else is saying, no, we disagree with him. And then they just started to squabble and bicker with one another. We all know the experience of giving like this, this amazing statistic to somebody, thinking, can you believe this? And then being met with an underwhelming response. It's, it's like when I tell my wife, honey, guess how many days there are until Christmas? And she goes, I don't know how many. And I say 202, which there are 202 days till Christmas. And she just rolls her eyes and goes, oh my gosh. Or, or, or like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll ask her, do you know how fast the fastest car on earth can go? And she goes, I don't know, like 800 miles an hour. I go, well, no, it's like 300. You know, and, and you're so excited about, about this thing and you think that they're going to share your amazement and then it's just sort of like this humdrum underwhelming response. Now the fact that there are 200 days, 202 days till Christmas is not that amazing to most people, but, but Paul is introducing the people of Israel to the promised hope of Israel. And the best that they can do is bicker among themselves. You can imagine Paul sitting there going, you guys, are you serious? And so he quotes Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, directly toward them. Words that were spoken to their ancestors. He says, now these have been fulfilled in you. Look at verses 26 through 28 with me. He says to them, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull and with their eyes they can barely hear. And their eyes they've closed. Lest, lest, 
lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And if they did that, I would heal them. This is where I want to camp for the rest of our time today. Seeing and hearing, but not turning. Seeing and hearing, but not turning. The, the prophets, the New Testament writers, Jesus, they all warn about merely hearing the gospel message. They, they warn about merely seeing the glory of Christ, but not acting on what is seen and heard. Jesus often spoke like this in regard to the, the massive crowds who followed him as though he were some political celebrity or, 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 or some, some miraculous healer who, who was little more than, than, than a circus trick or little more than, than a genie or a commodity. He would turn to that crowd often and say things like what Paul said to, to his Jewish hearers here. In Matthew 13, 14, he's on the boat in the Sea of Galilee and he turns to the crowd which had been following him from town to town and he says, in their case, in the case of this crowd, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive. He says in, in his Sermon on the Mount through a parable in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, very well-known parable, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. If you do hear but you do not turn from your sin if you do see Christ through the message of his gospel and you do not turn to him in faith, your life will be like one built on sand. And when the storm of the final judgment comes, great will be the fall of your life, is what Jesus is saying. Friends, the call here is, is to not only see and to hear, but to turn, and specifically to those whose lives have not turned to Christ in faith. That is the message that Paul is preaching to these, these Israelites living in Rome. Those who have not turned to Christ in faith. The Bible calls this turning repentance. Repent is a, it's a biblical word for turn, for turning from sin, 
for, for turning from worshiping false idols, even idols of our own creation, which are money or comfort or anything that we would worship other than God and turning to God in faith. According to Paul's quotation of Isaiah, those who do hear and see and understand and turn, he will heal. See, friends, the instruction isn't hear and see and understand and turn and then work your way to get right with God. It's turn and he will heal you. He will lay the foundation of his son under your life so that when the storm of final judgment does come, you will stand on him. He will heal you from the the, the pain and and, and the effects that, that sin and a fallen world have caused in your life. He will heal the disruption that exists between you and God because of sin. He will restore your life. He will restore your future. He will restore you to fellowship with the God who created you. If you would hear and see and understand and turn. See, it is not enough just to hear the message of the gospel, to hear the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, there is a responsibility, a need to receive it and to believe it and to turn to him in faith as the only Lord of your life, as the only Savior of your broken soul. Friend, if you have not turned to Christ in faith, when final judgment does come, Great will be the fall of your life. You will not stand. And the primary appeal to you from Acts 28, 27 here is that you turn to Christ in faith that you might be healed by him. But friends, this is not only a warning given to those who haven't yet turned to Christ in faith. It's also one given to believers who are tempted to become complacent hearers of God as you go throughout your Christian life. Complacent hearers of 10 months of the book of Acts. Turn with me to James 1. It's, it's, near, it's near the back of your Bible. Okay, So if you've got your Bibles, open up or in your, in your browsers, wherever. Turn to James 1, verses 22 through 25. Okay, this is, this is a well-known, familiar passage, but James speaks specifically to this, okay? James, he says, but be doers of the word. He's speaking to believers, to Christians, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, identifying that this is a tendency, a temptation for Christians who have already turned to Christ in faith. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away 
and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, the image that James gives us here is of a person who lives as though they have a deformed face. Who, who thinks that, that their right eye has gone blind, so they put a patch over it because it's useless. Might as well not even let it be used. Who, who thinks that, that their tongue is deformed, so they speak with a lisp because of that perceived deformity. Who, who thinks that they're bald, so they never do their hair. But then who looks in a mirror and realizes there is symmetry in that face and completeness, and beauty. But then turns away from that mirror and resumes life as though his face was as deformed as he always thought it was. See, God's word is a mirror that reflects back to us the new creation that we've become in Christ. Similarly, and especially in the book of Acts, God's word reflects back to us the beautiful nature of the church, the bride of Christ. So as a church, we look at the book of Acts and we're beholding this reflection of the beauty of the bride of Christ, of the local church. And the point is that when we look at the image, uh, the, at the, the image that God's word presents to us of a redeemed life, being those who have been redeemed, we should go out and live redeemed lives, right? And when we see the picture of the church, the beautiful bride of Christ, whom he loved and gave himself up for, that he might cleanse her and present her to himself without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing as he says in Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, when we see the beautiful image of the church in Acts. Being the church, it should be our great desire to turn from wherever we are not in conformity to that image. So we have seen that image and we have heard of the timeless traits of the church, some like 40 timeless traits over over ten and a half months. But will we turn and be conformed to them? We have heard and we have seen, but will we as a church turn? Now, one caveat here is there has been so much fruit. Over the last ten months, we've seen this church conform to what we've seen in Acts in so many different ways. Like I said at the beginning of the service, I counted it a daily privilege to be a member of this church and to be a part of what God is actively doing here. But it would be a mistake to come to the end of the book of Acts and say, well, that was fun, next thing. And turn away from it as though we turn right away from our reflection and go away believing there's nothing else left to do. No more turning left to do. This turning 
this repenting from, from, from error, repenting from sin, repenting from, from false images of what the church should be and what we should be as, as redeemed Christians, that is a lifelong process. So, if we're not careful, we can hear things as wonderful as what we have heard in Acts, yet be just like the Jews who left unchanged by what they had heard. And, and I don't say we as the pastors, I say we as the church, all the members who together make up the body. Certainly, turning and acting upon and becoming may initiate through the leadership of the pastors, but the church doesn't turn unless the members of the church together turn, right? Unless we each see our responsibility uh, to, to Christ and to one another to act upon what we've seen and heard for his glory. So, we, we've encountered some 40 timeless traits and acts, and, and by God's grace, he's growing us in many of these, apart from our awareness even, but there are five which we've heard and seen that I believe the Lord would have us single out. To, to, to repent and turn at any point today forward from any way that we're out of alignment. So five, five timeless traits that as we leave the book of Acts, our prayer is that our church continues to turn toward these traits, to be continually conforming to these traits. Because if we lose these traits, we begin to drift away from being the church, the bride that Christ created us to be. So even if you're not taking notes, write these five down. Think about these. Talk about them. Talk to, to your, your pastors, to Jeff and I, about these, about where, we, where you see that we're not in conformity to these. Hold one another accountable to this. This is our job together. It's our privilege together. So five timeless traits to set our focus on conforming to as we leave the book of Acts. First, the gospel the timeless message of the church. And if you think, well, of course, the gospel, then that's precisely why this is the number one trait from the pastoral team to you. Because if we lose the gospel, we lose the church. If we lose the gospel, we cease to be the church. And we can become so familiar with hearing the gospel in our preaching, in our conversations, in our songs, in our counseling, in the books that we read together, that we begin to assume it will remain that way. And we slowly fall out of conformity to this trait. Let's never assume the gospel. Let's never assume the gospel. In small group, be aware of how you tend to counsel people with your advice or experiences rather than the gospel. Be listening on Sunday mornings. Is there enough gospel being, being uh, articulated every Sunday morning 
for an unbeliever who is in attendance to actually be saved on every single Sunday morning. If there's not, something's wrong. Is the gospel the motive for the decisions we're making and the directions we're going as a church? And, and, and one final thing here, saying the word gospel doesn't count. We're, we're talking about the substance of the gospel message here. The, the, the birth, life, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign of Jesus Christ for our sins, for our reconciliation to God. The person and work of Jesus Christ that, that has impacted the world in such a way that salvation has come. Leading to the restoration of all things at his second coming. The substance of the gospel, not just the word gospel. Secondly, secondly, this is a longer one. Prayer, Bible intake, fellowship, giving. Prayer, Bible intake, fellowship, giving. The timeless habits of the church. Timeless habits of the church. We want to be a church whose patterns and rhythms and habits are shaped by the gospel and reflect what we see in Acts. And we see all four of these constantly, over and over, especially in the early chapters of Acts. A church who, who instinctively moves to prayer in any circumstance. A church who is thoroughly founded on God's word and who looks to God's word in all things, a church who values fellowship, for whom something like what, what we see today as small groups, men's meetings, Sunday gatherings, is not just something that's optionally attended because, well, that's a great social thing, but because it is the lifeblood of our life together and the life we share in Christ. A church who gives to one another and who supplies for the needs of one another and who gives joyfully to the mission we share together. Those habits and patterns and rhythms, may they characterize us. And let me say a word about conforming to traits that are habits of the Christian life. None of these habits or patterns are, are an end in themselves. Listen to what Michael Reeves says actually in Rejoice and Tremble. He says, the mere habit of going to church on a Sunday will not itself necessarily produce in us the right love of God. Neither will reading the Bible, praying, and so on. I can maintain such habits like an unstoppable switch, Swiss watch and still be utterly devoid of the love of God. Those things do not give grace. They are means of grace. They are points of contact with the gospel. They're points of contact with the gospel, which alone has power to transform us. In other words, it is not the mere act of conforming to the timeless traits of the church that does us good. It is the gospel that we encounter in them. That's so good. It's not the habit itself that transforms, but the gospel of Christ. 
the timeless habits of the church give the people of the church the points of contact with the gospel, they need to be a healthy church. Friends, let's be a church who's conformed to the timeless habits of the church. And speaking of encountering the gospel, number three here, gospel proclamation, the timeless mission of the church. We don't, we don't want ourselves to only be, be having points of contact with the gospel. We want our neighbors to as well. If our neighbors aren't being contacted with the gospel, then there's something wrong in there. Because gospel proclamation to the lost is a timeless trait of the church and will never cease to be. The church in Jerusalem existed to spread the gospel to their neighbors in Jerusalem. The church in Antioch existed to spread the gospel to their neighbors in Antioch. Cross of Grace Church of Santa Ana exists to spread the gospel to our neighbors in Santa Ana. On day one, today, and as long as the Lord would have this church exist. As you heard during our members meeting a few weeks ago, after a year of sheltering at home, it's time to get back out into our city. As any church plant becomes more established, it's easy to lose our sense of mission to our city and to become inward focused, to become ingrown. Friends, let's resist that temptation. Je Jeff and I and, and other leaders in the church, we, we want to give opportunities, especially this summer, to get out into the city, to spend time with our neighbors in your own neighborhoods. Resist that temptation to become inward. Let's always carry the mission of gospel proclamation to the lost with us as a church. Two more. Number four, the Holy Spirit, the timeless power of the church. The power for our mission, the power for our growth in Christ, the power for anything we strive to do or to become must come from the Holy Spirit. Jesus has ordained that we be a church wholly dependent, like the first century church, on the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for the miraculous to happen within these walls, within these beautifully curtained walls. Let, let, let's expect the Lord to give us prophetic words to encourage one another. Let's ask God's Spirit to be present to fill us and to do what we didn't expect Him to do. Let, let's pray with abandon for the Holy Spirit to miraculously give our friends and neighbors ears to hear and eyes to see so that they might be so they might understand and be healed by God. Friends, we mean this. And I know you know that we mean this, but this is a trait where we have much room to grow. This is one where we have room to do a little more turning and to lean into. So in this case especially, let's, let's not be hearers only, but doers and experience the power of the Holy Spirit for his glory and the good of the church. Typically, churches like, like ours who are theologically conservative, this tends to be an area where, where there can be a whole lot of turning. It's weird when 
churches like ours are, are, are really active in it, what, what some would call the more miraculous gifts of the Spirit. They're weird churches. They look weird. Let's be a weird church. We're totally fine. Actually, we want to be a weird church in that sense if it means that we, we are conduits of the power of the Spirit toward one another and to our neighbors. Let's be a weird church. Number five, joy. The timeless expression of the church. The, the thesis of the sermon in Acts 16 was don't let anyone tell you that a Christian's joy can be stolen. Don't let anyone tell you that a Christian's joy can be stolen. Oh, only, only you can steal your own joy because you have Jesus. Because Acts showed us a church whose joy couldn't be stolen by sickness or jail or opposition or trials or even death because the church knew the hope of Israel. Who's the hope of the world? And Jesus can't be taken away from us. He produces a joy so deep and so pure that we can't help but to express that joy. And in fact, next week, before we start our Summer Psalms series, we're going to spend one special Sunday actually by looking at one particular psalm, Psalm 100. Next week, we're going to look at Psalm 100. And, and we're going to spend next week looking at that psalm about how that joy should be expressed through our corporate worship together. We're going to talk about singing loud not just to sing loud, but because we have a reason to sing loud. Because there's a reason why Christians for 2,000 years have sang. Why singing when we come together is a priority for us. Because we have a joy that cannot be taken away. We should be the most joyful people in Santa Ana, and our neighbors should be able to see and hear that joy in us. And with that, friends, we conclude Luke's 28 chapters of Acts. But the end of Acts is not the end of the story. The story continues through us here today. Because Acts is the story of the first century church. We're the 21st century church. The continuation of what began in those 28 chapters. May we be a faithful picture of what Jesus intended his timeless church to be. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have... We've asked much today. We've asked much over the last year that you would conform us into whom you have called us to be. And even ending today on five very large traits, we know that it's beyond us to do that alone, to turn. In fact, Lord, we cannot turn unless your spirit grants us the ability to turn. 
We cannot repent unless you place repentance within our hearts. So I pray that you would do that, Lord. Open our eyes. Give us ears to hear. Give us understanding in our hearts. And help us to turn. And heal us where there's healing to be had. I pray for anybody here today who does not know you, who has never turned to Christ in faith at all, that you would heal them by your grace.